Welcome to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. Welcome to episode one of the Protectors Podcast. My first guest is former Staff Sergeant Benjamin Breckheimer. Benjamin's story is incredible. I'll read you a little bit about Ben from his bio. In September 2009, Benjamin's life would be forever changed. While on his second deployment, he was wounded in action while on duty when he was driving a striker reconnaissance vehicle that had a pressure-plated improvised explosive device. He was immediately evacuated to Kandahar Airfield to receive life and limb-saving surgery before being evacuated back to the United States. The wounds he sustained were incredible. They included a concussion, perforated eardrum, vertebrae fractures, pelvic fracture, both femurs fractured. His lower right leg was partially severed, and it was only saved through limb salvage. These wounds would not stop Benjamin. He went on to climb some of the highest peaks in the world, including Mount Everest. Listen in as he tells his story. I'd like to welcome Benjamin Breckheimer to my show today. Benjamin is a former Army Staff Sergeant, and he is what I consider a protector, someone who deployed overseas to protect our nation. Very glad to have you on, Benjamin. Oh, I'm happy to be on. I'm glad I could be your first. Oh, this is incredible. My first guest, my first podcast guest. I love it. Yeah, I got, got a lot to live up to, so. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Right. So, Benjamin, tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. It's literally a suburb just northwest of Milwaukee. And, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of the cold. <laughs> I recognize that, uh, that accent. Funny stories, I actually deployed when I first got overseas to Kuwait with the uh, Wisconsin National Guard. I was one of those individual uh, ready reserve guys, IRR, that got hooked up with a unit deploying overseas. So that was my first uh, real encounter with the Wisconsin accent. It was pretty good. Yeah, every once in a while it kicks in. So you grew up in Wisconsin. What made you join the Army? You know, I usually like to start off my uh, whole icebreaker story here with, um, I asked the question, how many of you remember Desert Storm unfolding in 1991? And usually nobody raises a hand because I totally talk to younger people. And then I'm like, all right, so how many of you remember it? And it's like two people that raise their hand because they're like our age. (laughs) So that's kind of funny. But where I'm going with this is I remember it. I was six years old and I just remember watching the footage on the news, especially the nighttime footage. It just caught my eye and I was like thinking to myself, you know, that's what I want to do when I grow up. If there's ever a war, I want to be a part of it. So you joined the army. What did you first join as? Yeah, I initially joined as an operating room specialist, which at the time was a 91 Delta, but since then it's turned to a 68 Delta for whatever reason. Um, the reason behind that was because, you know, I wanted to be a surgeon when I was growing up and I didn't want to go to college. So I was like, pretty much told the recruiter, you know, give me the closest to being a surgeon, but without going to school for it. He's like, we have an OR specialist. Do you want it? I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> oh, that's great. What year was that? That was in 2002. I uh, initially signed up under the delayed entry program, but I didn't leave for basic training until 
early 2003. Well, you know, anybody who joined post 9-11 knew they would, they may actually go to war regardless of what your specialty was. So that's actually a big, big step for you. How'd your family feel about that? Um, they were surprised. I had literally came home one day, told them I talked to a recruiter and I was going to basic training in two months and they didn't really know how to take it. <laughs> I'm sure that's the same way my parents were, but you know, I was uh, the pre nine 11. I was enlisted in the nineties. So my parents were like, Oh my gosh, you're going to die. Cause they were the Vietnam generation. So oh, <laughs> a yeah. bit different. Uh, so you joined the army, you're like, boom. Uh, and then the next thing you know, you're in Iraq. What was that like? You know, it was probably one of the best years of my life, but also one of the most mentally exhausting. I actually deployed uh, to Baghdad in the green zone, working at even Cena hospital with the 10th cash out of Fort Carson, Colorado. And, um, you know, it was mentally exhausting because I was 20 years old and that was the first time I ever saw somebody die, like right in front of my eyes. So it was definitely something after the year deployment I turned callous to, but, um, you know, it was a lot of good memories with a lot of great people. Um, but there was, after the deployment, I felt like I needed to do a little bit more. So that brings us on to your next story. You, so you went from being, you know, uh, I should say fairly safe to actually getting into a combat owner's branch and pushing out of the wire. I mean, that must've been, you knew you were going to war then. So tell you, tell the audience about like, what did it feel like to actually, you know, go combat arms? You know, that saying the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the field. <laughs> um, honestly, that doesn't apply to everyone because I loved it. Um, I actually, once I came back stateside, I signed uh, re-enlistment papers to become a cavalry scout. And uh, the reasoning behind that was just because I remember that first service member that died on the OR table. And uh, it just didn't seem fair to me. You know, my thought was that this kid could be 18 years old, have a wife and kids of his own, and he's out in the front lines fighting for me while I'm relatively safe in the green zone. And uh, it just didn't seem fair to me. And I felt like I needed to do more. So that's really what pushed me um, to go at the opposite end of the spectrum. Nah, that must have been a kicker. Now, were you married? Any kids at the time? Not at all. I, you know, I just had my immediate family, uh, mom, dad, stepdad, stepmom and siblings. Wow. That's, that's crazy. So you go cab and then, um, did you go active duty or were you reserves? No, I went active duty. I actually had to have my reserve commander sign release paper so I could go active duty. Um, and I was sent to complete the second phase of one station unit training at Fort Knox and uh, after that, I was assigned a 5th Brigade 2nd ID um, out of Fort Lewis, Washington. Oh, that, that must have been interesting, I'm sure. I mean, you've been traveling all over the place now, Wisconsin, Iraq, and now you're in Washington. So I, I guess the unit comes down with orders and you're sent where to next? Yeah, you know, I was I had just got to the unit and it was total like FNG. I mean, man, like... I felt almost intimidated because I was with these dudes that have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times, actually seen action. And here I am, this former medical specialist <laughs> going on ox opposite end of the spectrum. They're like, dude, what are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah. I was there for about a year and a half, uh, just getting trained up, getting used to everyone in the unit. 
And uh, we had a huge problem with a lot of lower enlisted soldiers going AWOL. And uh, I ended up getting thrown in the platoon sergeant's driver's seat for a striker. Um, <laughs> I knew, you know, like typically the newest person in the unit gets assigned the driver. So I was kind of bitter at the time and I didn't really want to be a driver. But uh, we ended up deploying to Afghanistan in July of 2009. Now, walk us what it was. Walk us through what it was like. You know, going from relatively uh, interior green zone in Iraq to all of a sudden you're a combat arms guy in Afghanistan, where the war is still raging on. What year was this? Two thousand five, six. This was 2009 when I went. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The war was still going strong then. So, I mean, it's going strong now. I mean, not to discount or anything, but yeah. Tell us what it was like to go to Afghanistan. You know, it was, it was everything I imagined it would be. Um, I honestly enjoyed, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I was, it, if not every day, every other day, we were going outside the wire doing patrols, observation posts, um, and just presence patrols. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you know that something could happen, but you really don't think about it. Um, but just being in that whole group of guys, that whole band of brothers experience was really what I loved about the whole situation. Oh, I'm sure. And, you know, uh, I, I, I was kind of touching on, do we want to go into the, uh, what happened next? And I, I think the audience would like to know what happened, like when you were in Afghanistan and kind of what brings you to who you are today. So yeah. do, you, do you mind talking about that a little bit? And then, you know, I understand if, if it gets a little emotional or anything, it's fine. We'll just kind of skip over and get to like the, some of the, uh, the stuff you did later on. No, not at all. I'd love to talk about it. It's actually a memory that I kind of cherish. And I know a lot of people don't really want to remember it, but, uh, September 13th, 2009, you know, just a few months into my tour, I hit very first pressure plate IED or very first IED I had ever hit. And, uh, unfortunately it was enough to take me out of the fight. And, um, you know, it's one of those memories where it's honestly changed my life. Uh, before that time, I was happily married. And then in a split second, you know, this complete snowball effect to who I am today. Um, it's honestly a blessing in disguise. So I'm, in a way, it sounds super crazy to say, but I'm glad it happened. Um, but I say that because nobody else had got hurt or uh, killed or wounded. So it was just me that took the force of the IED blast. And, um, yeah, in total, I had a concussion. My right eardrum was blown. I had a couple vertebrae fractures, a pelvic fracture. Uh, both of my femurs were fractured, and my lower right leg was literally uh, just hanging by a strip of skin. Wow. I, I just can't even imagine. I mean, I can't. I mean, unless someone's been there, I'm sure they can't imagine either. So you get hit by the IED, the next thing you know is, are they rolling a whole nine line medevac? They're coming in or taking what happened? What happened next? Yeah. So I'm going to kind of go in the whole feeling of the hitting the ID because I think it's very important for people. Okay, to definitely. Um, so, you know, like when you're sitting there just going on regular routine patrols, you're kind of bullshitting through the VCs. You know, we had managed to rig a podcast up so we could hear it through our uh, uh, helmets and just, we're singing along to some music and then everything went black for me. And, uh, I remember just kind of waking up and uh, in the striker vehicle there on the left-hand side of the driver, there's the enunciator panel, which will alarm if 
any faults go on. So this whole panel is like lit up red and you hear all these alarms. And then just hearing my buddies in the back scream my name uh, was enough to kind of wake me up. And I was able, you know, to just scream. I just needed to let something out so they know that I'm still alive up here. Um, so, you know, you sitting there choking on dirt and dust and all the fumes. And um, once I finally came to realize what had actually happened, um, they had honestly not skipped a beat, threw me on a litter. They managed to pull me through the back of the vehicle, uh, threw me on a litter and started firing up the nine line. And honestly, within an hour, I was at a roll three in Kandahar. Wow. So you get to Kandahar, they take care of you. Um, what's going through your mind then? Oh, I was terrified. Um, you know, I was so used to being on the side of the operating room table that ending up on it was like so foreign to me. And, uh, you feel so vulnerable. Like when you're getting rolled in, you're like half naked in pain, but not really in pain. Cause your adrenaline's just pumping. Um, but you're just scared. You're really scared. But, um, you know, I had, uh, I don't know how, if everyone knows how they do internal body uh, bleeding checks, but you get the old thumb right up the old poop chute. <laughs> and uh, I had a few choice words, and that's the last thing I remember aside from waking up afterwards. Wow. So then you get uh, recovered back to Germany, I imagine? Yeah, it was a journey. Um, I got sent from Kandahar to Bagram. On the way to Bagram, my plane actually caught fire. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what, luck. At that point, though, I was so drugged up, I could have cared less. Wow. Um, but, yeah, I eventually got back to Bagram after they diverted us back to Kandahar, reloaded us, and uh, got sent to Bagram, stayed there maybe a night. And I got sent to launch school where I'd stay a couple more nights. And then really within five days, I was back in, uh, in the States. Wow. So then you had some personal crises happen, right? Yeah, man, this is where... You know, the IED changed my life, but one thing happened that I really didn't expect. Um, like I said, I was happily married before I deployed. Um, but then after I come back, I'm in the hospital for a little over a month. And uh, my wife asked for a divorce. And, uh, you know, the one person I thought I could ba- or count on bailed. And um, it sent me in probably the deepest, darkest downward spiral I could ever explain to people. And, uh, I really struggled for years with uh, depression and suicidal thoughts, tendencies. I had a whole plan and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I was lucky to have people in my life that noticed these things and really wanted to help. Um, But more importantly, I had my dogs, which were really what flipped that switch in my head where I was like, man, you need to, you need to make a different life choice because reality is if I were to take my life at that moment, uh, the dogs would be like nine on my face to survive because nobody would have known for at least a couple weeks. And I thought about the pain I'd be creating for other people. Uh, you know, just, I hate to say selfish because a lot of people don't look at suicide as selfish, but I had that feeling of being selfish where I'm, you know, creating pain for at least a dozen more people just because I want to take away my own. So that's really when my life just Switch. my whole life changed like that light switch went off in my head and i was like i don't want to live like this anymore yeah and you know that's kind of gets into where the next part of the story is going is like how do you climb out of that hole that despair that blackness that darkness 
that is PTS. I mean, so many people come back from the war have it. And it's not just people in wars, you know, our, our LEOs, our first responders, people who have suffered these traumatic injuries, these traumatic events, things that just jarred normal people. I mean, how do you climb out of that hole? And that's exactly what you did is, is what, what happened next? How did you determine, hey, you know what? I'm going to start climbing. I'm going to, I'm going to climb all the peaks. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's funny that you use that analogy. How do you climb out of that? And it's one of those things where I knew I needed to find something to do with myself. You know, after I got medically retired, I really lost who I was, you know, from the moment I was 18 until, gosh, what was I, 29 probably when I got uh, medically retired. And uh, that was all I knew was the military. So it was like, I, re- I remember like in probably middle school, this had to have been getting the Newsweek articles at the end of the week. And I remember Mount Everest was on, was the main uh, photo on the cover. And, uh, you know, I thought how cool would it be to challenge myself and try to reach the summit of Mount Everest. So I just took a leap of faith, not knowing anything about mountaineering and got into it. Yeah, that's different. Cause like, you know, you hear a lot about the mountaineering, like they grew up in the mountains, you know, they're in tip top shape. They grew up somewhere like the Rockies or the Appalachians. Here you are going up in like Wisconsin, which to me is fairly flat, yeah. wintry. And all of a sudden, and you're also a Purple Heart recipient. You're injured. And not only are you injured, but your legs are injured with broken femurs. I mean, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm going I'm to go climb like some of the highest peaks in the world. I mean, how did you mentally get to that next step? And then the next thing is, how do you train for it? Yeah, so what really got me to that next step mentally, it was really kind of for childish and selfish reasons. Like, after I got divorced, I carried my wedding ring with me for years. You know, I was like, if I hold on to this thing, she'll come back to me. If I prove to her that I can reach the top of Mount Everest, she'll come back to me. And, uh, you know, I just really kind of, I just started training. I uh, started putting on a pack, walking around as best as I could, as much as I could. And I ended up reaching out to just about every mountaineering guiding agency and outfitter, just trying to see if someone will help me out. Cause I literally knew nothing about this. And I was fortunate enough to have Dennis Broadwell of mountain gurus get back in contact with me. He was like, Hey man, I appreciate your story and what you do. And I want to help you. And uh, he gave me the opportunity to get into a, introduction to mountaineering course and uh, I went to Mount Baker that was the very first mountain I tried to reach the top of and it's only like a 10,000 foot peak I, well I can say that now that it's only <laughs> a peak but uh, you know and it was kind of a drag because I loved the course but I didn't end up reaching the top of the mountain so I was a little bit bummed so where is that kind of explain to the audience where that is yeah, so Mount Baker is in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. It's a part of the Cascades, North Cascades, I think it's called. I could be wrong, though. Okay. Now, as you're going up, you can't make it. You come back down. How did you overcome that first quote-unquote failure? It was really uh, Dennis pulling me aside and kind of drilling it in my head that you know some of the most accomplished mountaineers in the world um, some of the times they just don't reach the summit 
And you really put in uh, my head that, you know, if you don't summit today, you can just come back, man. These mountains are still going to be there. <laughs> um, so it was really him just pulling me aside and putting that in my head that kept me going. Because like you said, I had that whole feeling of failure. You know, I felt like I failed in my military career. I felt like I failed in my marriage. And here I am trying something different and I'm failing. But uh, he really drove me to keep pushing on. And he gave me the opportunity to go to Mount Rainier not even two months later. And, uh, you know, that same thing happened. Uh, I was just couldn't do it. Um, and I, you know, I hate to say I failed, but I failed to reach the summit, but this time I wasn't so beat up about it. I think just taking that first step is a win, you know, especially everything you've been through. I mean, I don't think anybody in the audience, myself included would think anything you've done is a failure. I think just taking those steps, and, you know, that brings you on to, the, on to the next part of our story. So all of a sudden you're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to go on. I'm going to climb. How many how many summits uh, did you want to climb or you have climbed so far? Uh, well, I've attempted two and I was over two. And uh, Dennis again was like, we got, we got a climb coming up in Russia. It's Mount Elbrus. It's one of the seven summits. And I really want you to be a part of the team. So I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. And, uh on August 1st, 2014, at 10.24 a.m., um, that was the first mountain I topped out on. And it was probably one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life at that moment. So that's, and I'm looking at my notes right now, that you went from 10,000 feet, which you just, I mean, you know, the powers that be, you can make it up, to um, Mount Elbrus, which is 18,510 feet. And for you metric types out there, that's 5,642 meters. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. And you're in Russia. I mean, that's just yeah. crazy. So tell me what that whole trip, I mean, not the whole trip, but just kind of the back brief. I mean, there, there must have been a ton of logistics that goes with that, you know, as far as like, you know, who you going with, how you getting there. I mean, just tell us quick uh, about that. Yeah, so I was I was again with Dennis and Mountain Gurus, and he had a team of uh, actually – real estate agents that were doing a climb for kids. So they'd raise money by climbing this mountain to give back to um, underprivileged children. And um, it was like, I think this would be a great group for you to climb with. You know, they're not, uh, well, I mean, they're in shape, but they're not mountaineers or anything. And he's like, man, you'll just fit in. So he pretty much put all the logistical uh, stuff together. And honestly, the only thing I had to do is pretty much pay for my part in the flight and I was on it. That's awesome, man. So anything significant happened during that climb? Was there anything that you want to point out? Absolutely. Um, you know, this climb was important to me for three reasons. Uh, first reason, it was the very first mountain I summited. Uh, second was because it's one of the seven summits, which for those that don't know, uh, the seven summits are the tallest peak in each of the continents. And uh, this would be Europe's tallest. And then the final third reason is kind of what really set me free, I guess I should say. You know, like I pointed out earlier, you know, I carried my wedding ring with me for years and I actually carried it with me on the summit. And, uh, you know, that little two ounce ring that felt like the weight of the world on my shoulders was holding me down for so long. Uh, I was finally able to let go and I literally just threw it off the summit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, I, I was happy. I didn't need to prove anything to her. I didn't need to prove anything to anyone. 
And, uh, you know, I fell in love with climbing ever since then. Wow. That's, that's incredible, man. So here you are, you just climbed your first peak. Now you're coming down your first summit, I should say you're coming down. How do you get off of that high? Or do you get off of that high? Or is it just, are you still riding that high? <laughs> you're still riding it. Like, you know, after I got back, I was still jazzed up for two more weeks. I was like, what's next? What am I going to do next? And, uh, you know, I, I literally just said, you know what? I reached one of the seven summits. I'm going to go for the rest of them. That's awesome, man. So what, what was your next summit? So my next, uh, well, I'm going to backtrack before that, but I had the opportunity uh, to go to Mount Everest in 2015 for the very first time. And, uh, you know, for me, that was like a dream come true. Um, and uh, after about four weeks on the mountain doing rotations to get acclimated, I was coming down from camp one with my climbing partner and we had just got to the bottom of the Kumbu Ice Fall, making our way towards base camp. And a 7.8 magnitude earthquake happened. And at first I did, I didn't really believe it <laughs> um, because I had never heard of an earthquake ever happening in Nepal, but also because like, you know, after four weeks on the mountain, you just feel dead tired. You know, your legs, uh, you know, well, I'm, I like, I hate to say disabled, but you know, I have newfound abilities, I'll say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just thought like my legs were tired. So they were wobbling because I was exhausted, but. You know, my climbing partner's like earthquake. I was like, no way, man. You're just, you're just messing with me. And then, you know, I, I just happened to look down at the ground and started seeing rocks shift. And then you see all these avalanches going off around base camp. And, uh, he said it again. And, um, uh, you know, I, I really took it serious this time because I knew what was happening. It was for real. And, um, you know, we started making our way towards base camp, kind of running. And, uh, I saw this huge white cloud come rolling at us. And, uh, you know, at the time everyone has GoPro camera and I had one on my helmet and I was like, you know what, I'm going to flip this thing on. At least it'll give my family some comfort that I didn't die alone, but also I wanted to be YouTube famous. And, uh, you know, today I have 25,000 views on that video and I haven't seen a dime. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We're going to link to that video after this. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but that was the first time I was truly terrified in my life. You know, the IED blast was instantaneous. You don't see it coming. Uh, but an avalanche come rolling at you, a uh, huge white cloud, not knowing what behind what's behind it is truly terrifying. And um, my climbing partner and I were lucky. We had just caught the tail end of the avalanche. Um, now, did you get buried at all? Uh, we got dusted. Like we oh, were okay. fortunate enough to be able to duck behind an ice ledge that was probably about three feet tall we just uh, bunkered down and let whatever was left roll over us I, I tell you what you know you had a lot thrown at you and now here all of a sudden you are in like mount everest and like me growing up mount everest is like the be all end all so you're getting ready to go up and then all of a sudden there's an avalanche an earthquake i mean <laughs> one what that i mean that's just incredible so did you how long did it take you to end up just taking off and hitting the summit. You know, I had honestly taken a good year off of climbing after that happened. Um, I'd like to say just kind of get my bearings after that. You know, I really took in the realization of what can happen in the mountains. And uh, I just took a year to get a hold of myself, get my grips. And uh, I was just, 
on our whim, got right back into climbing. I got to, the opportunity to go to Mount Kilimanjaro, and I summited that on March 1st, 2017. Um, and like I said, I just kept going, man. <laughs> I got <laughs> sponsorship to go back to Everest in 2017. And uh, on May 22nd, after, gosh, almost six weeks on the mountain, uh, I stood on top of the world for 30 minutes. Wow. Tell me about that. Tell our audience about that. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm like, I want to know more than anybody right now. Yeah. You know, Everest is a different beast, man. <laughs> when you get, when you get like 25,000 plus feet up in the air, you know, everything, well, even at 18,000 feet, everything's just significantly harder and you really have to like fight for every step. You have to, you know, take a step, take a few seconds to breathe, take a couple more steps. And really what I tried to do, the higher I got up on the mountain was just beat as many steps as I had the break before I started to have my break for breathing. So it's kind of like almost a game for me in a way. Um, but then once you get to the summit pyramid, it's like 50 meters tall, not even. And, uh, you see it's right there. And, uh, I took my time getting up to it because there was quite a few people on the summit and, uh, you know, just being that high up is so surreal. You're see for so far out. And, uh, I had one person actually asked me, is it like sitting in a plane and looking down? And uh, honestly it wasn't because you have so many tall peaks surrounding you that, I mean, they're like right there with you. So it's just amazing. It was an amazing feeling. And, uh, one that, first thing that kind of came through my head was like what's next (laughs) (laughs) exactly Uh, it was what was next so like i said to continue on on january 12th 2018 i got to summit mount aconcagua in argentina and then not long after that in august 16th 2018 i went to indonesia to summit karsten's pyramid which is uh the Oceanic Plates Toss Peak. Um, it's real, not one that most mountaineers try to do on their seventh summits. They usually go to Australia and do Kazi Kuzo. Um, but you know me, I like to make shit harder on myself. <laughs> so I decided to do that one. And then uh, just recently, uh, January 4th this past year, or this year rather, I uh, went to Antarctica and I summited Mount Vincent Massive for my six of the seven summits. Wow, man, that's incredible. I mean, so you just came back. Where did you just come back from? Uh, Antarctica. Wow. Well, I mean, I think of Antarctica as like, you know, below zero, like the North Pole type, you know, Santa Claus. What are we? What was that like? It, it was literally that. It was, <laughs> you know, it's funny because when you go to climb Mount Vincent or you go to Antarctica during this time of year, it's their summertime. Um, so it's sun year round or not year round. It's uh, sunlight 24 seven for like three or four months. And, uh, you know, the temperatures are like zero degrees, but because of the sun and the snow, you know, the reflection from the sun on the snow, Oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, you, you, you feel the cold, but you're not really cold because you have such good gear. You know, you're wearing these nice down jackets and stuff. So you don't really feel it. But it's definitely sub-zero temperatures, especially when you get higher up on the mountain. I, I tell you, I mean, I, I can imagine you're training all the time for this, right? 
Yeah. Um, some of the time, uh, I like to punish myself. So I typically don't train until a few months or two or three months before I start climbing. Um, why I do that, I really don't know. I think a lot of it's laziness. <laughs> um, but I think it's also attributed to, you know, that whole, you know, military thing. You know, you just suck up the pain and drive on. And that's kind of how it is in the mountains for me because of my quote-unquote disability. Now, what's a typical training day for you? Or are there any typical training days or it just kind of flows? Yeah, so when I do train, I actually go to the gym for at least an hour and a half every day for five days a week. And uh, I strap on 60-pound weighted vest, and I get on the treadmill at the highest incline. And I try to go as fast as I can without, you know, running. And I do that for at least an hour. And then after that, I get to the leg sled and do leg weights. And that's really all I do. Um, but the best thing to really do is just strap on a weighted pack and walk around for five to eight hours a day. <laughs> I'd say you're back to the uh, military, putting a ruck on and like rolling around for about 18, 20 miles. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we talked about the, uh, your army deployments. We talked about your injury. We talked about summiting. Uh, we talked about some great stuff. Now yeah. I understand you, um, you have a lot of causes you support. Let's go into that a little bit. Yeah, so I'm actually a volunteer and a mentor for a nonprofit organization called American 300. And uh, I'm going to do a quick story of how this got started because I think it's very interesting and very important. Um, American 300 was actually founded by Rob Powers. And Rob's story itself is pretty interesting. Um, he was a former biathlete, you know, the whole shooting or skiing, cross-country skiing, then shooting under duress. Uh, and he was training to go to the Olympics and the army actually caught wind of him and they recruited him to help start up the army mountain warfare school, uh, with the deal that they would support him during his Olympic bid. And, uh, you know, as the school was being started up, he became really close friends with a Navy SEAL called, uh, Petty Officer John Hall. And, uh, unfortunately John got killed at, on a mission, um, at an und undisclosed location and, uh, you know, it really tore Rob up, you know, during his Olympic trials, he picked up the bottle and lost focus on what he was doing. And because of picking up the bottle, he didn't qualify to go to the Olympics. Um, but he was lucky. He had an NCO pull him aside. That was a part of this mountain warfare school. And he was like, Hey man, I know exactly what you're going through, but you know, you can imagine how well that went, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you have no idea what I'm going through. And, uh, the reality was this, this NCO knew exactly what he was going through. Uh, this NCO was Sergeant First Class Tom Stone. And Tom Stone really brought Rob back to reality with this story because in 1970, Tom's brother, Dana Stone, who was a photojournalist, went missing in Cambodia with Sean Flynn, uh, who was the son of an actor called Earl Flynn. And uh, in 1971, Tom enlisted in the military and went AWOL twice just to go to Vietnam and try to find his brother. And, um, you know, that really kind of set Rob straight and Rob ended up getting out of the military honorably, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he and went on to coach, uh, Olympic biathletes and skiers. And, uh, you know, in 2006, Rob got a call that his friend Tom was killed in action in Afghanistan. And, uh, it really, it, 
ate at Rob, but instead of picking up a bottle, he wanted to pay it forward. And he started American 300, um, in Tom Stone's honor. And it was really created to honor him, like just to pay it forward to all the soldiers because Rob kind of felt guilt because he got out of the military and his friends stayed in. Um, so really American 300 was created and it's composed of individuals with stories of uh, resiliency. And we go to military bases all across the world to share our stories with service members, you know, to let them know that no matter what happens in your life, you can still pull through this. You know, there's that sad statistic that's 22 veterans a day kill themselves. And I think it's what two active duty soldier members do a day, supposedly. I'm not exactly sure, but, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where we try to tell people that, you know, in your life, you're going to get hit by your own IED and you just have to figure out a way to power through it. Or like you said before, climb out of that hole, you know? Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Yeah. So you do the American 300. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I'm actually really excited because uh, this spring I'm headed to Mount Denali to hopefully complete the seven summits and become the first uh, combat wounded veteran to do so. Um, I'm a little bit nervous, excited, um, and just kind of really still trying to absorb what could happen. Um, you know, if I do complete this, you know, being the first in the adventure world is something that's very hard to do these days. So I'm really hoping things work out for me, but if they don't, that's all right. Cause the mountain's always going to be there. Um, but also I still have plans to go to North and South pole and complete the explorers grand slam. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. So I say about four years when you're done climbing all the summits and we're going to be following you. I noticed that you are an avid golfer. Is that your next venture? You know, uh, I love golf, but I definitely don't plan on qualifying for any tournaments or pro tours. (laughs) (laughs) What's your, uh, your next venture after that? It's, it's, you know, it's funny you bring that up because you and I were just talking probably a couple weeks ago about writing a book and, uh, you know, our story, I mean, you got hooked up through, uh, Dan Barry, the owner and founder of combat combat flags. That's where it's at. Yeah. And if, you know, if nobody knows who Combat Flags is, look them up, combatflags.com or org, com. You're not an organization. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, he put you and I into contact because I've had a lot of people, you know, that I've talked to, friends, family, um, and just people that I go and talk to at these military bases that want to hear more about my story. Yeah, you know? I definitely see a book in your future. I mean, there's, I mean, we, we quick talked here about 40 minutes and uh, not even. And you've definitely got a ton, ton more to say and a ton more for the audience and a ton more for everybody to like learn through your, uh, through your story. I think it's perfect. Yeah, it's definitely something that will be new to me, but it's something I'm very excited to start. And, uh, you know, hopefully by the end of the year, it'll be published and everyone can go out and buy my book. It's untitled, so I don't have a name for it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It might be earlier than a year. You never know. That's very true. Now, one thing I want to say is like you are what I consider like a, a tier one protector. I mean, we always hear of like the the tier one uh, special operations forces. But when it comes to protecting our nation, anybody I see that 
You know, I could just strap on a uniform, go overseas, stay here as, in my eyes, a protector. And we're not talking about, hey, you know what, tier one that way. We're talking about, like, you are just an incredible guest, an incredible story. I'm so glad to have you on. Now, one thing I want to say, ask is, do you have a takeaway for our audience? Just something that you'd want them to know. Yeah, that's... I have a few, but there's one that I really want to point out because I've learned that throughout my adventures, you know, I think back about basic training and how I was 125 pounds soaking wet, ending up in Fort Benning, Georgia, out of all places as a medical specialist. And, uh, you know, just sucking, you know, those 20 plus mile road marches in full kit, you're like questioning why the hell did I sign up for this? Why am I doing this? And uh, that's honestly how I feel on every mountain. Um, there's a point in just about every climb where I'm wondering what the hell am I doing and why I continue to do this to myself, just literally hating life for that brief moment. And the answer is truly simple. It's if I'm not questioning myself to that extent, the outcome is usually not worth achieving for me. So I, really look forward to that challenge and, you know, the pain because most of the time the outcome is worth it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is don't be afraid to push yourself. Um, you know, just try something different and go for it. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Benjamin. Really appreciate you having, and, um, we, I will set up some links to your charity that you're supporting, to combat flags, to everything you're up to. Well, I definitely appreciate it. And thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to me.